WGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, for the next hour, we open the only book God ever wrote, the Holy Scripture. And if you have a question or a challenge in your particular study of the Bible that you'd like to discuss, or maybe a passage that you're looking to apply to some situation in your life and you want biblical counsel, if we can help, by the grace of God, we'll do our best as the Lord leads. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, locally, it's 525-1859. We have a lot of people now who listen through the Internet, and if you've never done that, you can go to wagp.net, and you can hear us anywhere in the world 24-7. Uh, and for our Internet lo- users, the number, as Rick said, is an 877 toll-free number, and it's 924-7980, 924-7980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and it will pop up on the screen. And uh, the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. Um, And as always, uh, we list the questions that have been answered in a given day after the program is over. And you can, uh, even if you can't always stay to get your question answered, when it is answered, you'll see the order it was answered in. And you can listen online and scroll down to the approximate place where you think it might be, and you'll hear your question answered. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, simply you can dictate your question. Rick, let's go ahead and get started. All right. We had a question left over from last week, a rather intriguing one. Scott from Beaufort uh, asks this. In the Old Testament, it's stated that if a prophet of God gets one prophecy wrong, he's a false prophet. I'm thinking of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. If the Jews rejected Christ as their Messiah, don't they have to count Daniel as a false prophet? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9 is one of the most amazing prophecies in all of the Old Testament as it relates to the first coming of Messiah because he sets a specific time frame in which after a decree is uh, issued, and the issuing of that decree is a well-known historical fact. You can even look up in the Encyclopedia Britannica and find the date. But from the issuing of the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, Uh, He predicts the exact number of years right down to the day by which the Messiah will come and present himself publicly to Israel. And it actually comes to uh, Palm Sunday in A.D. 32 and not by accident. So um, the wise men, of course, uh, probably from this region of the world, uh, if you remember, Daniel was a part of the Magi or wise men. Of course, he was a believer, and due to his influence, all the wise men in Babylon at the time were saved. Their lives were spared from the king's edict because uh, Daniel was able to interpret the dream. In either case, not only interpret the dream, tell what the dream was, which was uh, absolutely astounding. 
uh, but that was the hand of God over his life. And I'm sure probably through his influence, other people, uh, wise men, so to speak, came to faith in the Lord. And so the wise men at Christmas, Magi from the East, they were not, uh, you know, uh, superstitious people, as some people try to write them off. They were men of God. They were perceptive to the times and the epics. They knew that Messiah's coming had to have been approaching, not to mention that uh, the Bible prophesied in Genesis of a star that would be associated with Messiah's birth. So they came looking for Messiah, and they believed that that would transpire in their lifetime. Uh, So when you ask the question about Jews, well, number one, there may be an assumption in your thinking that all Jews are are lost and unbelieving. And of course, that's not true. Uh, It certainly was not true of tens of thousands of Jews in the Old Testament who believed the promise that Messiah would come. People in the Old Testament were not saved by good deeds. They were saved by grace. Uh, They believed that God would send the Savior of the world. And so when Christ died, his death was retroactive for the people in times past, just as he died for you, he died for me, and we weren't even alive. But God could see the sin of all time, and he laid it on Christ. He bore our sin in his body on the cross. So we'll meet a lot of Old Testament Jews in heaven who believed in Messiah. They didn't know his name would be Yeshua or in Greek uh, into English, Jesus. But nonetheless, uh, they knew Messiah was coming. Not to mention in the early centuries alone, thousands of Jews came to faith. On the day of Pentecost, everyone saved is a Jew. In the first seven chapters of Acts, everyone who is saved is a Jew. Uh, It's not until Acts 8 that you have the Samaritans who are half-breeds, half Jew, half um, Gentile. And then in Acts 10, the first full Gentile converts. So there are many Jews that believed then, and even today believe there is an estimated 100,000 Jews in the United States alone who are Messianic Jews. Uh, We have one in our church right now, and uh, we've had several in years past who have come to faith in Jesus as their personal Savior. Uh, If you go to Israel, in Jerusalem alone, there's 12 congregations of Jewish believers who believe Jesus is Lord. When I was there last year, I got into a conversation with a Messianic Jew, and I was asking him for the temperature of what it was like in Israel with Messianic Jews. He said, well, in this city alone, we have 12 fellowships of Messianic believers. So it's exciting to see how God is working. So there are Jews who are blinded, uh, indeed, to what the scriptures plainly say, and they look at Daniel 9, they look at Isaiah 53, and they reinterpret everything. Um, when I have dialogued with Jewish rabbis in years past, when I was in campus ministry, and we would meet with uh, all the various religious groups on campus, uh, places like Duke, it was required if you wanted to be on the campus. And I would get into dialogue with a couple of different Jewish rabbis there. And, well, how do you deal with without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness? Well, it was sacrificial. And so today now God calls us to make personal sacrifices. And that's how we would interpret it. So they end up spiritualizing the text of Scripture instead of taking it at its plain face value. And that's what can happen. Your eyes can be blinded in self-righteousness, where people tell you even today, Gentiles, they say, well, this is what I believe. And they pontificate some statement like it's true because they believe it. That doesn't make it true just because you believe something. You can believe something that's false. 
but in self-righteousness, you can be blinded to truth. And that's the major reason Jews today are not believing and embracing Jesus, according to Romans 10, that we're going to be studying in our exposition of Romans. Uh, It's because of self-righteousness, seeking to establish a righteousness of their own, rather than that which comes through faith in Messiah. Good question. Uh, I think we have a live caller, maybe, or another dictated call. So let's go to that. have another dictated call. Uh, Barbara from a town in South Carolina writes, uh, hello, Dr. Brogy. My question is that it, uh, is it okay to not fit in the norm? What I mean is that I don't have a lot of friends. I'm mostly by myself, even when I travel. It's like I'm always set apart from everyone else. I always fail in relationships. They never pan out. Some people say because I'm considered a leader, I stand strong and don't waver, even if I feel myself drifting. Uh, God will pull me in and make sure that I am protected so that all I just wanted to know is, uh, is it okay to be by yourself a lot? Uh, Sure, I go to work, I shop, all the normal things, but uh, who is really my friend other than God? Well, you know, uh, it is true that there are times when we as Christians can seem rather odd to an unbelieving world. And as the days become more and more wicked, and that's the day that we're living in, things are moving so fast uh, against the will of God and the word of God and the revelation that is unfolded in the Holy Bible. And so Jesus reminded us in John 15, he said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the word that I said to you, a slave, is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So there's two sides of that promise. There will be people who will be responsive to your life, to your ministry. Not always initially. Sometimes they're hostile. But when you show unconditional love, even towards people who are hostile to you, and God's commanded us to love even our enemies, then very often uh, a seed is planted, and God will later use your testimony and your witness to make them open to hear the gospel. No one's saved, of course, by looking at your life. They ultimately have to hear the gospel because the the plan of salvation is propositional. There is a message that must be heard. It must be embraced and must be believed in order to be saved. Now, with that said, there are some Christians that I meet that are odd because they lack social skills. Uh, they um, are odd because uh, they're just out of fellowship with the Lord and they think, well, I'm just being persecuted when really they're being more obnoxious than they are necessarily being persecuted. Uh, And two, sometimes being different how you present yourself. My my son works in the corporate level, one of my sons for a major organization here in our country, and, you know, he doesn't drink. And when Jordan sometimes is asked, well, well, I I don't drink. I have my own convictions that... uh, you know, I just don't care to drink. And if they want to probe that, I'm sure he's willing to go down that trail. But he doesn't make it a big issue. And there's a lot of people who really respect him because they see, one, his family and his children and his wife and his marriage. And and they have marriages and children and everything else that is failing. And so sometimes, again, it's our differentness that God uses to win a lost world. And that is a truth that we need to really pay attention to because, again, when we come to the end of the times, the last of times, the last of the last days, 
then the Bible is very clear that things will not get better. Things will get worse. They will get more wicked. A sin will increase. Men's hearts will grow cold. And so what the church is trying to do today is, well, if we're going to win these people, we need to be like these people. And that's a falsehood. It's our distinctiveness from the world. Light that dispels darkness. Salt that preserves righteousness. That becomes the basis for indeed winning the world for Christ. And so we have a lot of mega churches in our country that have really become, in one sense, the new liberalism, as Al Mohler of Southern Seminary has said uh, last year. And I think he's right on that. It has become the new liberalism. We've cuddled up to the world to make them like us and uh, because we don't want to be offensive. But the gospel is offensive. Righteousness is offensive to a rebel. But it's only as you hold the law and the truth of God up that it's able to serve as a school teacher, as a tutor to lead us to faith in Christ. Anyway, great question. Um, I think someone else has just called and dictated another one. So let's go there, Rick. They did indeed. And um, let's see here. Uh, this caller would like you to answer the following. Can a Christian be filled with the Spirit yet be blinded to the truth at the same time? If so, can that affect the person's service to the Lord and to their local church? Or is it uh, is this blindness to the truth just disobedience? Well, it's a fair question, and it's not an easy question to ask very simply, but let me give you some broad parameters. The Bible says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And so then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not be drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So it's not an option for the believer to be filled with the Spirit. It is a command of God. And if I'm not filled with the Spirit, then I am in disobedience. And so God never commands us, by the way, to be baptized by the Spirit. That is assumed to be true of every Christian in places like 1 Corinthians 12 in verse 13, for we have all been baptized by one Spirit. But we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. The indwelling or the baptism of the Spirit happens at the moment of conversion. It's true of every Christian. Now, that wasn't always the case. Prior to Pentecost, there was a time when people, for the first time, uh, who were believers received the Spirit. But that's the promise of, uh, of Pentecost. But in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, post-Pentecost, we have passages for by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And so, again, it's assumed to be true, even of the Corinthians, many of whom were out of fellowship with the Lord and had some major problems, yet they had experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the filling of the Spirit is commanded in Scripture because while he may indwell us, he's not necessarily infilling us. And with that said, there is a progressive dimension to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, When Jesus spoke of fruit in John 15, he spoke of no fruit, fruit, more fruit, much fruit. And so there's a progression that happens. And so when a person is newly saved, newly born again, as much as they know how to be, they are filled with the Spirit. But they're only filled with the Spirit to the extent that they are obeying what they know to be true. But there's a lot of things they may not know. They may not know as a new believer that God doesn't want us to waste time. They may not know as a new believer that God doesn't want us to cause another person to stumble. They may not know as a new believer that God expects us to give our increase to the local church. 
um, and so forth. Um, they're not living in willful sin to the one who knows to do right and to does it not. To him it is sin, James will write. And so there is a progressive dimension to the will of God into the filling of the Spirit. And so it's not by accident that when you look at Ephesians 5, there's an almost parallel text in Colossians 3. In Colossians 3, the command is, let the word of God, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And then he gives all these results that come from allowing God's word to have first place in our life. In Ephesians, it's a different command. Don't be drunk with wine, because when one is drunk with wine, he's under the control of the wine. He doesn't have to act drunk or fake drunk or try to stumble or slur his words. The wine controls him. Even so, we are to be under the control, the direction, the leading of God, the Holy Spirit. And then he gives the same identical results that are given in Colossians 3. So Jesus, for instance, says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you. So again, there is both of them brought together in a single verse. There's dependence on the Savior as a vine would, de- uh, as a branch would depend on a vine to produce fruit since it cannot produce fruit of itself. But there is the word of God playing a rich role in our lives. So if you know there's something that you should be doing, and you've chosen not to do it, then you're out of fellowship with the Lord. You're no longer filled with the Spirit. You're still indwelt by Him for the day of redemption, but you're not filled by Him. And certainly when you're out of the will of God, you can more easily be deceived. Um, But I say all this in that sometimes older Christians are judgmental on newer Christians, and they have forgotten what it was like to be a new Christian. So someone comes to your church, they receive Christ on a Thursday night at, say, meet the pastor, and they show up Sunday morning, and he's a male, and he has hair down to his waist and a ponytail. In some judgmental Christian, this was my actual experience, not my hair length, but someone in the church that I attended as a brand new Christian, some judgmental pharisaical type believer came up and told him to get a haircut. Well, God hadn't dealt with him on that yet. He didn't know that it was a shame for a man to have long hair. Now, long hair can be relative, I understand, but there should be a distinction between the way a man looks and the way a woman looks. So that was a progressive dimension of being spirit-filled. And as, by the way, he's, he grew in Christ, he cut his hair. He, 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 he got rid of the ponytail. Uh, the, God, God was beginning to change him, but we need to give people time to grow and be patient with them as God was patient with us. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Ashley from Bluffton would like to know, what is the United States' role in the Revelation? Well, um, it's not specifically mentioned. People want to find America in prophecy all the time in a number of different passages. There are some countries that are specifically mentioned, like Russia. Uh, That's specifically mentioned. There's a number of countries that the prophet Ezekiel specifically mentions. In a broad sense, um, the Bible teaches that all the nations of the world will go in the end against Israel. And understand the word nation, ethne, goyim, Uh, translated either nation or Gentile in Hebrew or in Greek, uh, can be used in a broad sense or a specific sense. Sometimes it's used as a synonym for a pagan. 
because Gentiles were typically pagans. So Jesus would say, don't pray like the Gentiles, Uh, meaning don't pray like a pagan using, say, vain repetition. On the other hand, the term Gentile can be used to refer to a non-Jew. And so the non-Jews of the world, the nations of the world, are going ultimately to go against Israel. Now, we think of nations sometimes just purely like the United States or Canada or Mexico. And that can be reasonable in the sense that very often within a given country, there can be a dominating ethnicity. So it used to be, for instance, in France, the people were of French descent. And you can track that back to the Tower of Babel and how that particular group or the Germans were from a particular line that came through. Now those countries are beginning to change. So like in some places in France, there's more Muslims than there are French people, so to speak, from the French ethnicity. But in the end, the United States and all the nations of the world, uh, whether it's a specific country or an ethnicity, are going to go against Israel. Jesus made that plain, clear statement. So right now, we're Israel's best friend, though this particular administration, some would say, have not represented what we have traditionally held to as a country. But listen, uh, it's going to ultimately happen. Uh, Even the United States of America will go against the Jewish people. Um, But we, we we should listen up because God will bless those who bless Israel, and God will curse those who curse Israel. Israel is the people that God is used to bring our salvation. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews. And that is true. Jesus is a Jew in terms of his human ethnicity. Um, And God is going to use the Jewish people as well to bring about the second coming of his son from heaven. Anyway, good question. I hope that helps. Um, Let's go to the next one. All right. Seth from Beaufort would like to know, is it possible that the 10 Toledah statements in Genesis that appear to form a basic structure within the book are from written accounts that Moses possessed and utilized under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to compose the book of Genesis? Well, the Toledah statements, there's actually 11 in Genesis. Uh, this is the account of, or you could translate it, this is the history of, or this is the generations of, and it's used 11 times in Genesis. So the question becomes, in liberal theology, how did Moses comprise Genesis and much less, not just Genesis, but the rest of the Torah? The Torah is the Hebrew word for law, and it's a descriptive word for the first five books of the Bible. Interestingly, our first five books have Greek names to them. Remember, the titles in the Bible are not inspired any more than the chapter and verse divisions are inspired. So at one time, of course, they had, you know, scrolls, and maybe on the outside of the scroll, they would put a marking. And so the Jewish people for the outside of the scroll for the first book of the Bible would put Barashit, which is the very first word in the Bible in the beginning. Uh, We, in our English Bible, in the first five books, actually use five Greek terms that come from the Septuagint. So we use the word genasios, uh, genesis, which means beginning. And so with numbers and Exodus numbers, Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy, those are all Greek terms. Deuteros, nomos, deuteros is two, nomos is law, the second law, the second giving of the law and so forth, where he highlights, you know, the second set of Ten Commandments and 
so forth. Um, so remember, the chapter titles are artificial. But with that said, in liberal theology, they argued that Moses had uh, did not write uh, the first five books of the Bible, but that there were various authors. And so in the 19th century in Germany, Germany has not only given us fantastic theology, but it's given us some of the worst theology as well. And so that's often the way the devil works. When there is a movement of God, the devil tries to counter it, and there's a spiritual battle. And so the great seminaries that were in uh, Germany became liberal. And of course, that's what opened them up for the reign of Hitler, was all the false teaching that came through the church. And so in 19th century Germany, they came up with a theory called JEPD. And they said there were basically four sources that uh, the compiler of uh, the first five books used. Uh, and so each letter, J-E-P-D, the Yehovah or Jehovah source, the Elohim source, and so forth. And, and they had all these different sources and put together. It's just sheer nonsense. In fact, a lot of people in liberal theology today now reject it and say that that theory had no credibility and they're positing new theories. Well, who wrote the first five books? Well, Moses did. God tells us that. God tells us that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Well, how did he know the generations from Adam to Noah? Well, either those documents, those genealogical records uh, came on the ark and they made their way down to Moses at one point through the divine providence and sovereignty of God, or those records were given by direct revelation. Uh, It's probably the former, that those were records that were compiled and Moses picked them up at some point and God had him record those. And because God believed those records to be accurate, they were given his stamp of approval when they were put into the Holy Scripture. So it doesn't dismiss the fact in the Toledah statements that Moses had sources that he used, but that no, in no way, shape, or form takes away from his human authorship or from the divine inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. But the Torah is always attacked, especially Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, because if you can discredit the book of beginnings— then you can discredit the rest of the Bible. Listen, if you can believe the first verse in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you can believe all the Bible. Um, Either God made the world as he said he made it or he didn't. And so the devils attacked the first book of the Bible, the first verse of the Bible, by saying God is not the creator, that evolution is the creator, and a big bang is the creator, and they don't have any explanation for how the big bang, and then some foolish Christians have argued, well, God used the process of evolution. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's antithetical to what the Bible reveals. and has huge problems with what it says, and we undermine the Word of God because we want to be loved by the world and embraced by the world, and embraced by science, and so we acquiesce to their level rather than bringing them up to ours. So anyway, good question. Let's go, let's go to the next one. And a reminder, you can always go to WAGP.net, listen to this or previous uh, Bible lines if you had a question or if something struck your interest and you wanted to listen to it again. And I believe our next listener does listen to us over the Internet, Pat from Ansonia, Connecticut, writes, I heard a series of sermons by a pastor on the Ten Commandments. When he got to thou shalt not lie, 
He actually stated that he believes God has given us a biblical basis for lying in certain circumstances. He referenced Rahab when she lied for the spies, as well as the midwives mentioned in Exodus, claiming that God blessed their lying. He mentioned that if we were in circumstances like Corey Ten Boom hiding the Jews, of course we'd lie. I decided to talk with him. I told him how I felt that saying that lying was acceptable to God in any circumstance was a slippery slope. The Ten Commandments are clear instructions. Sure, I may lie under those circumstances, but saying that God approves of it is something entirely different. I told him that Corey Ten Boom actually mentioned a, a specific incident in her book, The Hiding Place, that addressed that very subject. One of Corey's relatives had a very deep conviction that lying was out of the question, and when faced with telling the enemy soldiers the truth versus telling them a lie, she told them the truth, trusting God with all her heart. And God honored her faith by making the soldiers believe that she was making fun of them. They left without harming anyone. So here's my question. Am I wrong in my interpretation? Does God, in fact, approve of lying? How do you interpret those scriptures in light of the subject of lying? And finally, I'm a woman. Should I have said anything to this pastor? Well, you know, it's okay to dialogue with your pastor and to uh, say, well, you know, here's what I think. Tell me, tell me where my thinking is distorted or where it's wrong or, or whatever it is that you might be. But let, let's start with the general principle. The general principle is God specifically, clearly, uh, without any, um, you know, double talk said, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Sometimes people will translate that you shall not lie because when you bear false witness, indeed, you are lying. But there are other passages clearly in the Proverbs that, you know, state that lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. So God has clearly articulated what he thinks. In the Revelation, when you come to the last two chapters in two different places, he mentions people who are excluded from the kingdom of God. And he says those who love lying, not those who lie, but those who love lying, which is a mark of, you know, an unbeliever. And along with fornicators and adulterers and so forth, as he describes, you know, those who are excluded from God's kingdom. So God has clearly said lying is a sin. And so to rationalize and to say, well, what about Rahab? Well, let's talk about Rahab and let's talk about the midwives and let's talk about Corey Tim Boom since you raised those uh, issues. Um, with uh, Rahab, if you remember, uh, in Joshua chapter 2, it says, then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. And then we read, but the woman, Rahab, had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men are. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stairs, stalks of flax, which she had in or, uh, on the roof. So she lied. Uh, what wh was it right? Well, again, the end never justifies the means. Now, Rahab is commended for her faith. Uh, she's used as an example of faith 
in uh, the book of James, for instance. Uh, James looks at someone who is justified by faith, and if they have indeed been justified by faith, then their life will show it. Now, God never condones uh, the sin of Rahab just because it brought about a positive outcome. God God never says, well, you know, do evil that good may come. Uh, He never does that. But he rewards her for her hospitality and her faith, but never for her lie. Um, She did something as a very young believer. I mean, think about it. How did Rahab know what she knew about the Lord? Um, When the spies uh, encounter her, it says here in Joshua 2, and let's see, it's in verse 11, and when we heard it, our hearts melted. She's giving testimony of what happened when uh, the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea and allowed them to cross on dry ground and then destroyed all of Pharaoh and his army. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. And then here's her testimony. For the Lord, in, in my English Bible here, it's all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in deference to capital L, small letter O-R-D, which tells you the Hebrew word is Y-H-W-H, Yehovah or Yahweh. You can point it either way. For Yehovah or Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So she believed in the God of redemption. She believed in the God of the Jews as being the one true God. And James just highlights the fact that her faith was genuine because it was a faith that worked. She showed hospitality to the strangers, but she could certainly have, you know, saved the spies. God could have saved the spies independently of her lying. God never says do evil that good may come. The other example that people often appeal to as a biblical basis, quote unquote, for lying is that of the midwives. So let me just turn there to Exodus uh, chapter 1. And if you remember, uh, there came the chapter opens a pharaoh on the throne, a new king, who did not know Joseph. And he said, listen, the, the sons of Israel, they're, they're multiplying. They're getting to be more of them than there are of us. And, and so he had a plan to have all the baby boys slaughtered. And so the king of Israel spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra, uh, and the other whose name was Pua. So you've got these two women, Sifra and Pua. And he said, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, if it's a boy, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt, as Pharaoh had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. And the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And it came because the midwives feared God that he established households for them. (laughs) So again, people use this as an example uh, as a reason why we should lie. Well, again, God rewards the midwives with families because they fear God and they disobey Pharaoh. So how do you explain uh, their seemingly lie? Well, first of all, you know, the midwives may have told the truth. 
you, there's an assumption by some that they're lying, but they may have been telling the truth here. It may have been the case that the Hebrew woman, you know, fearing the commandment of the king, didn't call for the midwives in a timely way. So they may have been indeed just telling the truth. Second, um, it's equally true that these women, like uh, Corey Temboom or her sister, uh, were not obligated to say everything that they knew. You can withhold information. Jesus did that in Luke 23 and verse 9 when he's before Herod, and Herod drills him on questions. But just as the prophet Isaiah said, like a sheep silent before his shearers, he, he doesn't say a word. He's just silent. And sometimes we don't have to speak a lie. We can just be quiet. And then third, you know, if someone really believes that these women were deceptive, and I recognize that's a possibility, um, you have to understand that they're rewarded for their works, not for their words. They're blessed because they refuse to murder the babies, because they fear God. And, and indeed, you know, God was gracious to them and showed them kindness. Now, when you bring up Corey Tim Boom, or your pastor did, it is true that she had a sister by the name of Nolly. And in, if you've ever read the book, The Hiding Place, I, it, I think it's out of, maybe it's not out of print, but it was extremely popular when I was a new Christian. Billy Graham made a movie over uh, the life of Corey Tim Boom. Not everyone listening to me even knows who she is. She uh, was a Dutch uh, Christian who, with her sister, hid Jewish people, as many Christians did, uh, during the time of Hitler to spare their lives. And, of course, she's the author of the book, The Hiding Place. And one of the things that she did is she did lie, but her sister didn't. And the thing that she does in her book is she highlights her sister, Nolly. And so on one occasion, uh, I can't remember what chapter it is. It's been 25, 30 years since I've read the book, but uh, it's about in the middle of the book. But on one occasion, uh, the Nazis come in, and there's a a little uh, girl who doesn't even look Jewish, uh, and there can certainly be certain physical characteristics of a Jew, but not always. But she doesn't even look Jewish, not to mention they had created some papers for her that gave her a whole nother identity and name. Um, And so when they broke into the house and they asked Nolly if this little young teenage girl was a Jew, she said yes. And her sister, who had been hiding, um, got all upset uh, when she found out that her her baby sister was carried away. And she was so upset, and she cried, and she screamed, and she uh, had it out with Nolly and complained to her sister, Corey. But Nolly felt like she needed to tell the truth, that she could not lie. Now, there are certainly other things that she could have said. She could have been silent and said nothing. She could have asked a question like, well, what's a Jew? And, of course, the trained description that uh, the Nazis gave of a Jew, she could have then responded, well, no one here fits that description. Or she could have even put the burden of proof on them and said, well, what makes you think that there's Jews here? On one occasion... Uh, if I remember correctly, they were sitting at the kitchen table and right underneath the kitchen table was a trap door and they had some Jewish people there. And so the Nazis came in, uh, asked Nolly if they were hiding Jews and she said, sure, they're under the table. 
and they just kind of laughed it off. Uh, but they were literally under the table, under the floor. And by the way, what happened to that young woman, uh, if I recall, she was a teenager, um, she was carried away to Amsterdam with 40 other Jews, and a few days later, uh, they were all freed, and they all escaped, and their lives were spared, and they lived to tell the story. So again, a wrong never makes a right. God never says, do evil that good may come. And so there are certainly things that uh, we don't have to say. We can be wise as serpents, as innocent as doves, but you cannot ever build a case that it's okay to lie under any circumstances because God's word is expressly clear as to what he thinks about lying. So it's a good question. I appreciate it. And let's let's go to the next anything one. Anything else in regards to what she ought to say to her pastor? Well, you know, um, you know, give her, give her, get him to think about this. Uh, get him to listen, send him to search the scriptures uh, for this particular day, and uh, he'll see the questions that are asked. And, hey, the pastor, I asked the pastor the same question I asked you, and here's how he answered. I would love for you to listen to his answer. It's at... Uh, you know, 42 minutes into the program, you can queue it up for him, send him the link. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when I started it, but you can figure that out and say, click on this uh, link. And at 42 minutes in, my question is asked, tell me what you think of his answer and see how he responds to you. Uh, maybe he hasn't thought this through as carefully as he needs to. So anyway. Right. Very good. A listener, uh, this was a local call we just got. A listener in a conversation about the state of our country and the world with a friend who is not a Christian said that it seemed like Christ was being taken out of Christmas, schools, the courts, cities, etc. This friend asked her, if your God is so great, then why isn't he, why isn't he winning? We know that according to 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than that is in the world, than he was in the world, rather. What other scripture or explanation would you give? Well, I would say he is winning, and this is exactly what he said would happen. God is the God who knows the future because God is omniscient. And so God foretold the future concerning the first coming of his son. He gave over 300 specific prophecies as to what would take place and what the atmosphere of the world would be like when Messiah came. And he came into a very dark world, the prophet said, like a light shining in darkness. That was the atmosphere of the first coming. It was a wicked world. And when he comes the second time, he will step again, not into a revitalized world that is, you know, living for Jesus and is Christianized as some post-millennialist taught before the first and second world war. Uh, No, he's coming back to an evil society. Jesus likened his return to the days of Noah and the days of Lot. The days of Noah were days of moral permissiveness. They continually did evil, the Bible said. Um, They were days of gross immorality, moral permissiveness. And he likens it to the days of Lot. Again, not just because of the unexpected judgment that suddenly came on the day of the great flood and the unexpected judgment that came on Sodom when God rained down fire and brimstone, But because, A, people didn't listen to the preaching of Noah, we learn in the New Testament that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We don't know that from the Old Testament. Uh, So all the time he's building that boat over 100 years, 
he's uh you know has a hammer in one hand and and he's preaching with his mouth from the other and he's inviting people to respond and many people did respond other than the eight uh let's not forget that there were other believers who came in faith to Noah's message. However, the day the flood came, there was only eight of them who were alive. But during the 100-year period, there were other believers and um, who had, you know, believed in the God that Noah preached and believed about. And God speaks of them in Genesis. But for the most part, by the time the 100-year era was over, uh, it was an unbelieving world and only eight persons in all were saved. Um, in in the days of Lot, Lot, he doesn't appear to be a great believer, but nonetheless, he is a believer. The Bible speaks of his positional righteousness in the New Testament, that Lot is a righteous man, as Second Peter highlights, but nonetheless, uh, he didn't have much influence, and most people didn't want to live. And so the days of Lot were days of moral perversion. What was Sodom and Gomorrah like? It was covered over in sexual immorality and sexual perversion, homosexuality. And this is what we are seeing in our day. Yesterday, another state went down. There's 12 states right now that are debating uh, this whole issue about the legality of homosexuality. And, you know, Chris Christie had a chance to stand up, but he didn't. He just acquiesced because he's not a believer. He, he may be a semi-moral man, but he's not a believer. He doesn't call Christ Lord in the biblical sense of the world, so he's just moving with the culture. He's doing what's politically prudent. And this uh, man who, Booker, was the mayor of Newark and newly elected U.S. senator, when asked, of course, if he was gay, would not come out and say, and says, well, what difference does it make? Which was kind of an answer, a positive answer. But, of course, the day the law was changed by the Supreme Court of New Jersey, he's there at the steps of the city hall marrying homosexual couples. So we know where he stands. And this is what the Bible says will happen. So just because evil is progressing does not mean we're losing. It's a reminder of the stages being set for the return of Messiah. And you look at people in Christendom today who name the name of Christ, but they don't live the name of Christ. The Bible speaks of a coming great apostasy in the Christian world, and it will happen when the Antichrist comes on the scene, when people who are outwardly Christian but not inwardly born again will reject the historical claims of Christianity, embrace a false Messiah, an Antichrist who comes in the place of Christ. And so again, the stage is being set Uh, for what the Bible says is going to happen. And so your friend, if she would just begin to read a number of New Testament passages, how about if you just gave her this verse to read? You could give her the Olivet Discourse, and she could certainly read Matthew chapter 24, or you could read this verse to her that is a picture of the last of the last days. And I say the last of the last days because technically we've been in the last days, the Bible teaches since the day of Pentecost, But here, this text is dealing with the last of the last days. It's a prophetic verse. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Well, ladies and gentlemen, they have come. They've arrived. Paul is speaking prophetically, but listen to what he says to Timothy in the first century is going to happen. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, 
unholy, unloving, or without natural love, literally the Greek text teaches. And um, phileo is the Greek word, aphileo. And so without natural love, it negates phileo love. And so the kind of natural love that you'd expect to see between parents and their children, between a man and a woman, is being replaced with parents who don't love their children, who care for their children, children who don't love their parents, who sometimes even murder their parents, and perverted love as seen in incest and in homosexuality, Uh, irreconcilable people, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They hold to a form of godliness, but they've denied its power. So religion without reality. And that's the day that we live in. These days that Paul speaks prophetically have arrived. And so we are winning. God is doing exactly what he said is going to happen. That doesn't change what I'm supposed to do in terms of proclaiming the gospel and to try to get people to, through a second birth, do what is right. But the reality is, is things in the end will not get better. They will get worse. And if you don't believe that, then you're self-deceived and you've not read your Bible. And if you think you're going to, you know, change America through the White House, you're deceived. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. You should vote your Christian values and morals. It's a sin not to vote in my judgment. And when I came as the pastor of this church, I met scores of people, even leadership, who weren't even registered to vote. It was embarrassing to me as a pastor. And so Christians should indeed express their political views, but don't put your hope in the White House. Put it in the church house, in in pulpits that are aflame with righteousness, not in the megachurch or pulpits, like a major pastor in Atlanta who won't come out and say that homosexuality is a sin. And he gives an illustration where two men are living together, and the sin is, is because one is married, not that they're living together. And so, again, the megachurch has become the new liberalism. And um, we need to wake up and be very, very much alert, and we need to separate where we're called to separate. All Christians want to hold hands with every church in the community. God commands the opposite that the only ones we're to hold hands with, so to speak, are with other fellow born-again Christians, but not with pastors who deny essential moral and biblical doctrines of the faith. We're to separate from them. Now, there have been Christians in years past who have separated on secondary issues and not primary issues, on issues that the Bible maybe has not given a definitive objective answer to. Um, and they've split hairs, and they've shot their own people in their own army. And that's tragic when that happens. But now we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, and we want to link arms with anybody and everybody. That's just as big a sin, and we need to be aware of what is going on. All right, we've got about four minutes left. Time for at least one more question. Noah from Hollis, New Hampshire writes, I am 10 years old and was wondering if John the Baptist escaped to Egypt like Jesus when he was a baby, to escape Herod? Well, um, no, John the Baptist, uh, it appears, did not have to do that. Um, John, of course, is there's a difference in age of uh, just a matter of, of months. Um, but, of course, 
you know, God protected John the Baptist, and the Bible doesn't record the fact that he has to flee. Um, he is the forerunner of the Lord, so in one sense, nothing can kill him, just like in one sense, nothing could kill the Lord Jesus. But still, nonetheless, it says here, and now at this time, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to, this, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, meaning John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby, John, leaped in my womb. Where are they? They're in a city in the hill country of Judah. And so Mary and Joseph, of course, because of the census under the providence of God, they have to go to Bethlehem to register as required. And God is going to fulfill prophecy from this because the prophet Micah said that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that Bethlehem of Judea would indeed bring Messiah. So they're living in Bethlehem, and the edict goes out to the families in Bethlehem to have those babies slaughtered. John's not living in Bethlehem. He's living in another city in the hill country of Judah. But being aware of where Mary and Joseph are going, being aware of, you know, the, via the wise men and what their thoughts were and everything else, he's having all the babies in Bethlehem to and under, not every baby in Israel uh, slaughtered to and under. Anyway, great question from a 10-year-old, Noah, you're thinking biblically, and that's really good. Tomorrow night at Community Bible Church, if you uh, would like to know how to use the Billy Graham outreach that is going to take place nationally on November the 7th, my hope, it's a Thursday night, and you would like to have uh, people in your neighborhood, people that you work with, friends and relatives to your home in which to uh, share the gospel, uh, come for the training tomorrow night. We will do a dry run. You will get the a 30-minute DVD of Dr. Billy Graham and various people sharing their testimony, and then he's sharing the gospel. You'll know how to invite your friends, uh, what to say after the DVD is shown, how to invite men and women and boys and girls to uh, share Christ. You'll learn how to write your testimony in three minutes or less. So that's all tomorrow night at Community Bible Church. If you want to participate with your local church, in winning people to the Lord Jesus. We're out of time for today. A lot of questions came in we didn't get to, but Lord willing, we'll be back here another day and we will be able to answer them. Thanks so much. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm.